Welcome to Byline Confidential, a podcast where we talk with journalists about their lives, their work, and their careers. I'm Greg Pratt, reporter in Chicago, and I will tell you right out, I am a man who likes to talk to a man or woman who likes to talk. This week we're talking to Tom Lydon, a reporter with Fox in Minneapolis who's one of the best all-around reporters in the Twin Cities. He's a talented TV reporter, he's a talented investigative reporter, he's a pretty entertaining guy, and I enjoyed talking to him. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, please consider subscribing on iTunes for the high price of nada. But for now, enjoy the talk. So I'm here with Tom Lydon, and we've got like two Simpsons uh, things. <laughs> side to side, yes, side we are side. bookended by Simpsons. Which is very good. <laughs> Hopefully. And you're one of these uh, you're one of these reporters that people talk about, and they say that you break a lot of stories from all sorts of angles. So it's not just like politics stories or sports stories or prison stories. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? Uh, it comes from a pretty big Rolodex. You know, I recently looked at... Uh, well, I think it was when I switched from a BlackBerry to an iPhone. It was long overdue. And for some reason, I had reason to look at how many contacts I had. And I had more than 4,000 contacts in my phone. And I literally, if you call me, if you contact me, I keep your information. Uh, it doesn't matter really how small or anything like that. So I think that has helped over the years. But more, I mean, you know, you can have a Rolodex of 4,000 contacts. And it won't do you any good unless you keep in regular contact with, you know, the core of them. And, you know, there are about 50 people that I keep in pretty regular contact with that I don't let more than a month and a half go by without making contact with. They kind of know the ground. And if they don't know the story, maybe they've had a sniff of some story. They, you know, they I, they always say journalism is the rough draft of history. Sometimes I think rumor is maybe the rough draft <laughs> of a news story. That, you know, they've heard something, and it may only be half the truth, but, you know, it gives you a reason to call someone up and say, hey, I hear about this. What's going on? Um, so there's a regular group. And I've got to be honest, after uh, 20 years here in this television market, I, I also get a lot of calls. People call me. And I, there's an expression, if you want something done, you give it to the busiest person you know. I, I'm pretty busy. But I think because they see me a lot on the air, um, because I keep pretty busy, you know, people think of me. They're like, oh, there's that guy on TV. You know, he seems to be doing lots of stuff. I'm going to give him a call. Some of the danger, I think, when you do investigative work is that you kind of disappear from the streets. And that you're only seen every, you know three or four months and I think that that can be that can be hard I mean it can be hard in terms of knowing what's going on on the streets uh, but it can also be hard uh, in terms of people seeing your face and you know you mentioned something and I'm I'm, I'm kind of flattered that you mentioned that I, I break stories from a wide you know a diversity of sources and I think that's really true yeah well, I, mean, I was, I, I was drinking with a wide variety of sources okay. <laughs> who, who mentioned it when I said I was going to be talking to Tom Lydon uh, but you know I do I break some stories in politics I break some stories you know I started out as a crime reporter here I worked a lot the crime beat which I think is great for any reporter starting out in a, in a new place you kind of get a lay of the land uh, but you know, there's crime, there's politics, and uh, and then just kind of everything in between. So, you know, I have a lot of folks that I check in with from all different kind of walks of life, and I try to keep it interesting. I mean, you know, I also made a concerted effort. I think about ten years ago to kind of get out of kind of the daily grind of of crime. God knows it's nothing like what it was in Chicago, but you know, kind of 1998, 99, 2000, you know. It started looking the same here in Minneapolis in terms of just, you know, God, day in and day out, 
you know, you were doing crime stories, and that got old. I mean, you know, you always want to keep it fresh, and if you feel like you're doing the same story day in and day out, it's Groundhog Day, that's not very good for you or for the public. I mean, you know, I always kind of think that we have these, you know, ten narrative themes in television news, and every day seems a little bit like deja vu. <laughs> you know, you have the David and Goliath battle. You have, you know, the... Yeah, I'm going to make cor- you list all ten. Yeah, the corruption theme. Well, I probably could if, I, if I'm if i here long enough. I could tell you exactly kind of the, the ten themes that it seems like every story fits into. And I always try to kind of break out of that because, you know, I think audiences recognize and appreciate something that stands out. And if the news always feels like Groundhog Day, it's not very interesting. So you try to find the thing that... You know, may fit into the theme because it helps people, gives people a shorthand, but also give people the hook that doesn't fit into what they think is the theme as well. Now, you, when you started, you weren't on TV, right? You were a newspaper guy? Originally, after college, I was editor of my college newspaper for no good reason except it just seemed like a place to kind of hang out, to be honest. I started out and then I became the editor-in-chief eventually my senior year. Uh, I think at the time I actually had a girlfriend that got me into the college newspaper, um, so that was a very long time ago. But uh, yeah, I did that, and then I went home uh, and uh, ended up working for the newspaper, literally the small daily newspaper down the street. Where, where's home? Uh, it was La Habra, California at the time, Brea, California. Now my parents' home is, is elsewhere, but at the time it was Brea in, in Southern California, Orange County. And this was the Daily Star Progress, which was literally the newspaper down the street. I think it had about 20,000 circulation covered. La Habra, Brea, Whittier, Fullerton. Um, was owned by Freedom Newspapers of the Orange County Register. Daily Progress now a business. But basically, I covered the community of La Habra, um, which was very interesting, very Hispanic. I think 60% Hispanic. And I went to city council meetings and planning commission and, and did all that. They didn't have much crime at the time, although they did have some gangs. And, man, I think that was invaluable. I loved doing that. I think, first of all, if you think there's an ego tripping on TV, it's nothing compared to seeing an article above the fold in a newspaper. That is probably the biggest high I ever got in journalism, especially because it was landing on my parents' doorstep. Sure. And, you know, being a small, you know, a small newspaper, sometimes I had two bylines that were above the fold, and I felt like I walked on water. And for them to see that was really awesome and it was really fun and then um, this sounds kind of silly but I read uh, Linda Ellerby's And So It Goes and I thought it was a great interesting book about kind of marrying pictures with words and I said wow that sounds kind of cool and sounds kind of fun and uh, I took some classes at Cal State Northridge that was a grind. People talk about paying your dues. I felt like that; those were my paying my dues uh, a few a year or so there because I would Northridge was pretty far from Brea, and I would uh, jump in the car at 3 o'clock in the morning to get there to do morning edition, uh, and that started like at 5 or 6, I guess, and it was about an hour and a half away, and then I would come back home, and I would go to the Daily Star Progress and do my eight hours for the newspaper, so I was just kind of working all the time, but it was great. Anyway, then decided to go to grad school sometime in there. I went to grad school at the University of Missouri, and after that, got my first job in Green Bay. Worked there for three years and came here. That first paper you worked at, you remember any good uh, good stories you did for that paper? Oh, gosh. You know, not that stand out. <laughs> that was a long time ago. You have to realize that was 25 years ago. But no, I don't remember anything. I don't remember our first investigative story or anything like that. I really don't. Um, you know, I, uh, I don't. <laughs> That's funny. 
That's uh, you know, sometimes I guess you just remember the things, how you felt about things, how you felt seeing yourself above the fold, but not necessarily the stories. No, and I don't think I was doing any big story. I mean, you know, it was a small daily newspaper. I, uh, I, it was you know, go to go to the city council meeting and, and find an angle, find a story for the next day, you know. So I don't think I was I was in the business of of doing big, huge stories at that time. Right. What was your next step? After the Daily Star progress, yeah. I went to grad school. I went to, you know, University of Missouri. And they, of course, you know, the deal with being a grad student there is I think the first year is mostly classes, as I recall. And then the second year, they put you out at the TV station, KOMU, um, in which you, like, literally start putting stories together and figuring out how to be on TV. And everyone's really awful when they start. And hopefully by the end of the year, they're pretty good. Uh, that's kind of the deal and how it goes there. And, and people end up being pretty damn good. Uh, you know, it's a good school, and it's very, it's very practical. You know, the, the expression it used to be there is we teach you how to turn, well, it's not the expression officially, but, you know, you learn how to do a story where you probably don't have a lot to work with. And you want to turn it into something that looks pretty acceptable. What's the air. expression? Well, I was hesitated because cuts here all of a sudden, but it's it's take uh, chicken shit and turn it into chicken salad. Sure. And and you know how you do that in terms of the craft of putting together television uh, becomes important in terms of knowing how to do that. You know, I think there's a good and bad to that. I'll be honest with you. You know, Missouri. Uh, you know, it's a great journalism school. It's the oldest, but I always think there's a little bit of a danger. And emphasizing storytelling abilities, and this isn't a Missouri thing. This is an industry thing. You know, we have to tell stories because it's we're, we're telling stories, or we, we have to fit things into a narrative. But I think sometimes, especially young reporters, you know, they get so busy trying to figure out how to tell a story that has a nice beginning and an end, and an net sound pop here and a net sound pop there, and, and you know, colorful characters that they forget that we're also in the industry of telling journalism. That we're, you know, we're in the news business and we're conveying facts and information. Uh, and I think sometimes people get a little too wrapped up in telling the story, quite frankly. And they fool themselves into thinking that they're doing Shakespeare uh, and that they're doing art. And really it's a craft and we're conveying information. Uh, and, and storytelling is really a tool by which we convey information. It's not the end objective. Sure. It's not telling pretty sweet stories. It's, it's actually trying to tell people something. It's not about the verbal backflips. Yes, you exactly. You know, and I, you know, listen, if anyone's ever, ever overwritten a story, or, or maybe, you know, I certainly have overwritten a few. I can be a little flamboyant in the writing, and I'm positive that I've overwritten more than a few stories over 20 years here. Uh, you were talking about, so they teach you how to perform, and right now, 25 years later, or whatever it is, uh, which, uh, yeah, 25 years later, or whatever, you're a pretty good performer, right? Were you good at the time? You mean in terms of uh, in terms of talking, being comfortable, talking, being comfortable on the air. Uh, I was okay. You know, sometimes you also have people who come into this. I'm pretty dark Irish. I mean, I you know I come from a pretty long Irish tradition of storytellers, actually. So uh, I kind of have the gift of gab. I, I kiss the Blarney Stone. Uh, which is good and bad. If you know anything about the Blarney Stone in Ireland, it's, I think it's in County Cork. It's a rock a lot of people kiss, right? And it's a rock a lot of people pee on. The yeah. kids do. <laughs> so it's always kind of... So if you ever tell anyone it's Blarney Stone, it's a very mixed blessing. So it's someone who has maybe kissed the Blarney Stone but was also fool enough to kiss the Blarney Stone. So No, I, I think I always had a little bit of that gift of communicating. I was a high school debater. I did very well in that atmosphere. 
And uh, so I've, I've had some skills like that, which is funny because my mom thinks all of this is hysterical that I talk for a living because they were really concerned about me talking at all. I had a horrible speech impediment that I don't think they ever quite nailed down what was going on, but I went to speech pathologist when I was very young uh, a lot. I mean, my mom jokes that I was, I was seven until I stopped saying my name is Ami Aiden and da-da-da-da. No one understood me except for my mother. They thought I had hearing issues. They didn't know what was going on. Somehow I just grew out of it. So I remember I transferred from... I lived in New York when I was young, uh, kindergarten. I went to uh, California uh, when I was in the second grade. Yeah, the second grade. And so here I couldn't speak very well. I had this sort of East Coast accent and whatever else was going on. And my mom dressed me in knickers my first day of school in California. Needless to say, those California kids had never seen anyone in knickers (laughs) in their whole life. And I'm speaking like I got off the boat from England for some reason. Those kids, they practically threw rocks at me that first day of school, I swear. They didn't kick your ass? Well, I think they tried. I mean, it it was actually a very gentle uh, school. Dara Pama in second grade. I don't even think that school's there anymore. But uh, no, but I went home and I cried and I said, Mom, I'm not wearing knickers anymore. And from there on, it was about 20 years of wearing jeans and uh, brown t-shirts. So you you graduated, right? And then um, uh, where'd you go? From after Mizzou. After, after Mizzou, I went to Green Bay, uh, WBAY in Green Bay, Wisconsin, uh, which is a great TV station. I mean, I would recommend that as a – if people are lucky enough to get that as a first job. I mean, really, it's crazy that I got that as a first job. Usually people kind of get that as a second or third job. How did you get it as uh, a first job? Because I, I went to grad school at University of Missouri, quite frankly. And, you know, one of the great things about going to Mizzou is, you know, because of the TV station there, you come out with a reel of actual stories that you've done and you've put on TV. So I think being a grad student, having a pretty good reel coming from Mizzou, I think that got me a job in the 67th market. Instead of, you know, Pocatello, Idaho, I got to go to Green Bay, Wisconsin, which may not seem like much of a difference, but it's actually a huge difference. Uh, And Green Bay, WBAY, is an awesome station. I worked with the news director, Tom McCary, who's still there. I worked with an assignment editor who's now the assistant director, Jim Dillon. And they were both crabby, tough bosses. They were hard. They were kind of brutal. <laughs> they were so... I, they were... They, it was tough love, but I responded to it really well. Um, they were kind of sort of father figures in an odd way. I mean, they were probably some of my greatest mentors because their expectations were very high and I wanted to deliver. I mean, in some ways, they're by heart, by far the most difficult bosses I've ever had. Every boss after that has looked like a cakewalk. It's nice in its own way to start off with, like, the hardest boss. Of course it And then is. everything else is yeah. easier. Although I, got to be honest with you, I like the sound of the whip cracking behind my ear. That's weird, isn't it? <laughs> it's a really weird for someone who is as motivated as I am, you know, by myself. I hardly need anyone to kick my butt. But... I really do like the sound of the whip cracking. I think that's the competitive spirit. I like the sound of a coach saying, get the hell out there and beat the crap out of the competition. (laughs) I do really like that. I mean, i got to be honest, I haven't had that for years. I mean, it's just not, you know, we're very competitive here at Channel 9. I mean, we're very competitive and we're very interested in um, beating the competition, that's for sure. And, And we put on great broadcasts, but, you know, we're adults here too. We understand what our job is. I mean, we're just a very 
we're a very adult, civilized news organization, you know, when we have a lot of professionals. So we don't, we don't have to crack the whip by anyone's ear. Right. That doesn't mean I don't miss it, because I, I do. But, you know, we're a, we're a very, you know, the news business has changed over the last 25 years. Well, what stands out to you from your time in Green Bay, aside from the whip? Um, besides from the whip, you know, I will be honest. I think Green Bay, and I did. You, you asked if I had any very memorable stories working for the newspaper, and I, I don't. I mean, I, I may have had a good story or two, but you know, I remember beginning in Mizzou, I had a big story or two, and then really in Green Bay was kind of where I kind of got my taste for investigative reporting. I broke a pretty big story. We had a guy named Tom Monfiles in Green Bay who had a horrific death at the James River paper mill. He was actually a guy who was pushed into the vat of the paper mill. 48 hours of CBS would end up doing the story. A whole bunch of people would. And it was a mystery. Why did all of a sudden this guy who had a wife and kids and, you know, good neighbor, why did he end up at the bottom of a paper vat and why weren't any of his coworkers talking about it? And I broke the story of sort of the motive for all that, uh, as well as the 911 call uh, that people made reporting him to uh, he uh, Tom Monfiles. I won't go into the complicated nature of the story, but Tom Monfiles had snitched on some of his coworkers, and he was also causing some problems with the union. Uh, so his coworkers ganged up on him, and they they basically got him killed. And I kind of I, the stories that I did were the first that started peeling back the layers of that. So that was huge. It was a big story. The newspaper followed up on it, and, and you know, it ended up that a lot of people uh, went to prison for that. I think four or five people went to prison. Including, for pushing him? Yeah, for killing him. Including, some have been, uh, some are out of prison on appeal, is my understanding. Um, and some people went to prison who I dealt with regularly in terms of talking to. Uh, so even 25 years later, I'd be uncomfortable talking about who they were. But... Um, you know, that was kind of my big sniff of a good, big, juicy, complicated, nuanced story. And I loved it. And uh, there were a couple of others during that time. I, I can't recall them. But uh, that kind of got my first taste for what, you know, investigative stuff is all about. Was that the type of story that you just work sources, work human sources, and call them up and mm-hmm. bother people? Yep. do You know... I've never been one for meeting people in bars. You were just talking about meeting some professional colleagues. I'm fine meeting professional colleagues in bars. I don't like meeting sources in bars or doing stuff like that. I'm good with breakfast. I'm good with coffee. I'm good with all that. And I do a lot of that. I really try to stay out of bars. I don't go to sources. It's a bars with sources. No, I know. Yeah. I, you were going with colleagues. But yeah. <laughs> and I go with colleagues. Well, back in my younger days, I went to bars with colleagues a lot more. Um, yeah, but I do meet with college, I do meet with sources a lot, uh, and you know you can do all the work you want on the phone, but God, you can sure get a lot out of a breakfast meeting. And sometimes it's not even what you were intending to meet for, but it's just something else that gives you context or gives you the sniff of a better story down the line. So I try to do as much of that as possible outside of the office. But and you know, while I have sources that I'm very friendly with. I also don't think I have, and you know, I'm not quite sure how I've managed to do this. I, you know, I don't have sources that I also uh, that social with. I mean, you know, breakfast is about as far as it goes. Socializing, you know, I don't have anyone that, you know, I invite over to parties in my house. I've been kind of lucky enough living here in Minneapolis that I have sort of the same ten friends that I've always had. I mean, that I've had twenty years ago, really. I, and so, but I think that's also helped me kind of keep those lines clear. That sources are sources, friends are friends, 
you know my life seems very simple that way and I think that's important because you know you never know the person who's the source one day may turn out to be the story the next I mean it just gets too it can get complicated that way is there a big thing you learned in your first job in Green Bay which it doesn't have to be but something no I can't think of a of a huge first lesson you know I can't what was, what was next next I came here I came here, you know, t- right after Green Bay. Uh, One stop? Yeah. Uh, I was uh, hanging out with a friend of mine, still a friend of mine, uh, in Green Bay in our kitchen. And a uh, guy who was the executive producer here at KMSP, this was before Fox owned it. It was owned by a company called Chris Craft. Uh, they were also start up a network called UPN. It was kind of the lit- little engine that could, i got to be honest with you. Chris Craft? Yeah, well, the TV station, Channel 9. I mean, Channel 9 has a very long history in this market of having a 9 o'clock news. Uh, and there were some affiliation changes way back in the day. Harry Reasoner once worked at this station. Uh, but we were an ABC affiliate, lost our affiliation. And I think kind of in some ways uh, lost our direction at news. And we were, But we've always done a 9 o'clock news. It's always done well. But, you know, I think we had ended our weekend newscasts at that point, And we were really, there was a new management here and just trying to kind of reboot the station in some ways. Uh, and uh, called me up actually looking for... Another reporter in Milwaukee, Tim Lotz, <laughs> actually, who was in Milwaukee at the time, who would end up working here years later. And they were looking for Tim Blotz, and my friend Anita said, well, hell with Tim Blotz, who she was good friends with. How about Tom Lydon, who's sitting here in you know, the kitchen? And uh, basically, the next weekend, we drove out here, and uh, I got the job. That's pretty serendipitous. Yeah, it was very serendipitous. My friend Anita still wants 10% of my action. <laughs> she, fig- she figures she's my agent for life now. Uh, she's not getting her cut? No, she's not getting a cut. You be careful. She might push you into a... <laughs> she could. Off a cliff or something. She could. Actually, I just spent a good weekend with her in Madeline Island, and she was still talking about getting at least 5% of the action. So, How long ago was that that you came here? I know I had my 20-year anniversary last year, so September 13th, I believe it was my 21st anniversary, 20, for 21 years. Congratulations. Thank you. Your, uh, uh, your work self can drink now. Uh, 21, so that's cool. Yes. But what was it like starting out here? Um, it was, I'm going to be honest with you. First of all, I remember driving in on 94 and seeing St. Paul, and I said, oh, crap, I am totally over my head. This is a really big place. This is probably a bigger place than I should be in right now in terms of my skill level. And my friend Anita said, that's nothing. That's just St. Paul. <laughs> and we came, we drove through Minneapolis, and I said, oh, I totally know I'm over my head. And this is just looking at the skyscrapers. And I really thought that I had bitten off a little bit more than I should chew, that maybe I should go to Columbus, Ohio, or somewhere else, that I needed another little stop probably before Minneapolis. And, you know, I don't think, you know, it's always tough being the new guy. I have lots of, for someone who's been here for 21 years, I have lots of theories about the difficulties of being the new guy. You know, it did not help, I think, the manager at the time, who were really trying to reboot the station and kind of give some enthusiasm, talk to the other staff like I was going to be, you know, the next Harry Reasoner. Um, Because when you tell a staff that you've got someone coming in and they're going to shake things up and they're really great... Um, the staff hates you already. And I think some of the photographers thought I was Geraldo Rivera. 
and you know that I was kind of this sensationalistic crazy guy and probably 21 years ago I was a lot more like Geraldo Rivera than I am now I'm talking old Geraldo Rivera right 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 Uh, and I was probably a little bit more times were different and I was younger and I was probably a little bit uh, in terms of performance you know I'm 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 pretty enthusiastic, excited guy. I probably performed at a higher, I would call it a higher anxiety level, quite frankly. And I think that came off as a little bit more sensationalistic. And, you know, without doing anything conscious, I think I've milled over the years. Staff also got used to me. <laughs> after a year or two, they got used to me as well. Um, and, you know, I really, I got to be honest, after the first year here, I thought, oh, okay, I'm used to this. I get this now. I'm moving on. You know, I'm going to try to get to someplace in California or whatever else and you know long story short you know you develop a good group of friends then you find someone you fall in love next thing you know you buy a house and boom it's 21 years later and you're as happy as can be so that's how life goes sometimes I mean there th- that comparison's been made in places right the Geraldo comparison right to you and Geraldo like I think there's a Star Tribune story. I don't think people remember Geraldo well enough that's funny. to make that comparison but yeah, I mean, you know, I think if you're referring to, I think this, uh, Neil Justin the Strip did something. Yeah. Uh, you know, the headlines of those stories were worse than this. The stories themselves were quite nice, but the headline writer <laughs> was not as generous. The headline said, you know, sensationalist or sensationalism or substance, question mark. <laughs> uh, I think was the, the tease in the front page. Yeah, you know, it was. I mean, I think, I think that. That story comes down on the side of substance, uh, I think, without a doubt. What's a nice story about you, for sure. Oh, yeah, it was a nice story. But, yeah, no, I think I do. I honestly think that some of that is just, you know, my personal maturation. It was that, you know, I had just kind of calmed down uh, more than anything else. And, you know, it's also because God knows I there was never any kind of um, there was never any kind of conscious attempt on my part. Ever, I can say with a clear conscience to, to to be overly sensational or something like that. I mean, you know, I love stories. I love compelling writing, and so you know, I think some of it's because of that. And I, I think also, you know, when I go out on a story, especially when I was younger, I thought it was the most important thing in the world. I really did. You know, it may have been a you know a, a shooting at. 26 in Chicago, but I thought it was the most important story in the country that day. In my, you know, in my mind, you know, I just, because I think it's my full commitment to the story, you know, I'm all in. That's the only thing I'm focused on in that day. You know, that may be a couple things that I have on the back burner, but, you know, I think if I have a gift, it's, I'm pretty maniacally focused on whatever I am focused on in that, at that moment. I have a pretty good ability to keep distractions and other brain noise at a distance and kind of focus in on what I'm focusing on. So I think that unintentionally kind of, you know, made my stuff seem a little bit hotter than it, than it needed to be. And so, you know, I think I have pulled back probably a good 10, 20%, maybe not even that much, because I don't think we were talking about much, but there was just a little bit in my early work that even now, if I happen to see it, it makes me wince a little bit, like, hmm, that's interesting. It's just a little bit more, you know, Malcolm McLaren had this kind of notion of hot and cool mediums. And it's just a little bit too hot for the cool medium of television. How long did it take you to get comfortable? By the uh, way, did I say Malcolm McLaren? Really funny, because that's the musician who founded Bow Wow Wow and everything else. It's Marshall McLaren, I think. <laughs> Marshall McLuhan. 
I'm, I'm much, I know much more about Malcolm McLaren than Marshall McLuhan. <laughs> uh, but I think it's Marshall McLuhan that had hot and cold media. Malcolm McLaren was the guy who behind Bow Wow Wow and the Sex Pistols. The more you know. The more you, you know. know. It's very, uh, very cool. <laughs> how long did it take you to get comfortable and uh, you know, with the fact that you're not over your head? Or how long before you weren't over your head in this new market? Oh, I was probably ready for it. I, it. It was pretty quick. It was within a month or so that I was pretty fine. Green Bay, we don't have a lot of skyscrapers, to be honest with you. I think that's what really intimidated me, <laughs> literally seeing build. I think in Green Bay at the time, I don't know if this has changed. I haven't been to Green Bay in a while. But at the time, there was no building over 20 feet tall. And, you know, coming into St. Paul, Minneapolis, there were a lot of buildings that were over 20 feet tall. And literally, I think the visuals freaked me out more than anything else. That, and I always kind of knew, even though... You know, Green Bay is a pretty small town. It's a, it's an ADI. They call it the, that's how they measure uh, television markets. I think ADI stands for Area of Dominant Influence. Um, but you know, that market is Green Bay, Appleton, Oshkosh, and a whole bunch of other small towns in Wisconsin. And you know, this also is a very far flung media area. But you know, I just wasn't as accustomed covering towns that big. I mean, I I was accustomed to big towns. Don't get me wrong. I lived in New York and outside of Los Angeles, and so I was accustomed to big cities, but not necessarily reporting in big cities. Once you got here, um, were you hired as a general assignment reporter? I was. I was. And I'll be honest, you know, I do a lot of general assignments still. I mean, you know, that's always been kind of my deal is I kind of move in and out of general assignment and hard news. I mean, you're probably not going to see me do a feature story. Everything that I do is probably going to be pretty hard. Uh, But I move back and forth towards GA and investigative stuff um, pretty sort of seamlessly. Right now, we're about ready to hire a bunch of people, and I think the objective is to get me off the streets more and get me doing more investigative stuff. That's kind of my forte, and it's kind of what I seem to be kind of known for. So they want to do that. I'm certainly willing to do that. Um, But let me be honest with you. I kind of like, you know, it's when you're talking to people and doing general assignment stories that I run into people, and I hear about stories, and I get sniffs on all these other good stories. And the bosses here are so great about... You know, cutting me loose when they can. I mean, today, you know, I've quite frankly, before I realized that I had to come in here for this interview and rush out of the house, I emailed my um, assignment editor, actually the assistant news director now, and I said, hey, you know, I'm onto some TSA stuff. I would, would love it if you could cut me loose and let me kind of work the streets a little bit here today. And he said, like, sure, great, works, works well for me. You know, I don't have a, really a shooter available for you anyway, but go ahead, work your sources, work your contacts, do what you have to do, and boom. So I'm, you know, after this, I'm working some stuff for November. How different uh, is it now than it was when you first started? Totally. And that's Fox. You know, Fox bought us. I mean, I'll be honest. You know, we were, when Chris Craft owned us, we were the little engine that could. We did a lot of development in the early days with Alan Beck and Dana Benson. They were the news director. And Stu Schwartz, who was the station owner here for years, who, was a, who is a wonderful man and does great stuff and ran this station very, very well. The station made a lot of money, by the way, as an independent station. A lot of money. Probably a greater profit margin than it has today because the business has changed. And it was an independent station. Uh, Fox bought us and changed everything for the better. Made us competitive. Took us from the little engine that could... And we made a splash. We were going to be tigers. And I think the ratings, I don't know what the ratings are, but the ratings certainly have shown our improvement and that we're a, very, that we're a player in this market, especially in the demographics that advertisers like. And Scott over here knows the details on that much more than I do. But, you know, uh, Fox came in and they said, okay, boom, 
you need a helicopter. I mean, we didn't have a helicopter, and everyone at the time had a helicopter. Now we share a helicopter, but, you know, they said, boom, you need a helicopter. You have a helicopter. That's no small deal. I mean, I think that's a half-million-dollar deal for them to say, hey, boom, helicopter. Um, you need a new satellite truck. Boom. At the time, that was a half-million. Um, you need a whole bunch of new reporters. Boom. You need an investigative unit. Boom, boom, boom. I mean, that was incredible. That, and, you know, Fox gets dogged a lot for... Not for the programming, but you know, for maybe Fox News and, and some of the politics. But I got to tell you, there should be no doubt about their commitment to news and their commitment to their local stations. They own 26 stations across the country, 26 stations that do a damn good job of gathering news. And if you get a sense of me, of anything, I don't drink the company Kool-Aid, generally speaking. I mean, I don't drink any Kool-Aid, generally speaking, Okay, even with Scott over there. But I will tell you... Fox has done nothing but contribute to the news gathering in this market by taking the little engine that could and making it into a big locomotive. They dumped a lot of money in here in terms of news gathering. They hired the best people they could, best people they could in terms of managers. That we went out shopping for good reporters. We got Trish Van Pilsen here and uh, and you know grabbed some good staff from other reporters. We raided. Channel 4 in town of some of their managers. <laughs> Literally, we stole their old news director. We stole their assistant news director. I mean, we just we went around and stole the best from what other people had and then got some bests from other places. I mean, and we did that overnight. And so, you know, I'm, must, a, I'm a big fan of what Fox has done for the station. That must be fun to watch. A, a station transform. <laughs> or is it painful? No. Well, it was awesome. I loved it because under the old regime, I was always kind of, you know, I, I was ready to go full steam ahead in the little engine that could. And that was tough, you know, because I had people going not so fast. Uh, and not intentionally saying light not so fast, but, you know, they just, they didn't, I, I don't know, they were ready to play ball that way. And all of a sudden, in comes this thing that says, oh, we're ready to play ball. We're, we're ahead of you. Oh, we're, we're, we're charging down the path. And I'm like, oh, wow, okay. I mean, but literally, it was kind of like that. Um, so in, in one sense, it's awesome because it's like, oh, God, everything you wanted is suddenly happening. And I'll be honest, that's one reason I stayed here. I mean, it wasn't just love because I, you know, blessed with, you know, a husband that was willing to travel with me anywhere that I wanted to go. At the time, you know, my career was kind of doing really well. His career, now we have really, you know, kind of two-career household. But at the time, you know, he was willing to travel. And... Um, so it's kind of like, wow, everything that I really hoped could ever happen here is starting to happen here. So that kept me here. Um, that was one of the kind of factors that, wow, things are looking good here. I continue to kind of grow, which has always been sort of my litmus test for, for sticking around any places that you're growing and you're doing new things and so forth. So, but having said that, you know, change is always weird. And, you know, psychologists call it an adjustment disorder when you have troubles dealing with change. And, you know. Listen, I'm not immune to an occasional adjustment disorder just like the next guy, but overall the trajectory has been wonderful and great. What are the things you're proudest of in your career? I love watching people's faces when you ask that question. There's always Why? Like, what did my face just do? There's always a pause, you know. People have to stop and think about it. Like people don't think about that as much. Yeah, you know, I think, uh, well, I have my pause. What you probably read on my face is I, I don't, the one thing I don't want to sound like is an egomaniac. I mean, it's kind of weird to talk about what you're prideful about. I mean, I don't know. I feel a little alarm go off in the back of my head. <laughs> Careful on this one or you're going to look like you're a total ego. Uh, 
You know, I will be honest. I think let me talk. Uh, let me talk about my. Let me really talk ego, and just in terms of my personal stuff. You know, I like growing. I really do like um, doing new things and growing and developing and seeing a growth curve. My whole life has been kind of about seeing that. I mean, personally, professionally, all that. And I've had a pretty good growth curve, I think. And still developing, still growing. I mean, I'm a much better reporter, I think, than I was, uh, you know, a while ago. Just because I'm probably a more relaxed reporter. I probably know some things. More importantly, I know what I don't know. You know, I think when you're young, you think you know it all. You think you've seen it all. You think you figured it all out. Uh, I think wisdom is kind of knowing more what you don't know than knowing what you do. You know, I always think that's the danger as a reporter is, is not asking what you think is the stupid question. I am so comfortable asking the stupid question. You won't believe it. <laughs> I have no fear of embarrassment or shame in that regard. I just don't. You know, I think bad thing is making assumptions when you're doing reporting. So I'm proud of that. I'm proud of kind of, you know, who I am as a reporter at this point. You know, Pratt, you know. What about stories you've enjoyed? Yeah, I I think there are stories where I have significantly helped people. Uh, just the one that pops to mind just uh, most recently is, is, the, uh, is the River Road Fellowship. I did this story on a cult that operated uh, in Pine County and that operated for years that people had their suspicions about. And I told um, last year, February, actually this year, um, the story of two women who were part of this cult uh, as young children, um, just teenagers, young teenagers, 13. And they were molested by the cult leader, Victor Bernard. They were taken as maidens, a group of 15 girls. They were sort of nuns to serve this cult leader up in Pine County, Victor Bernard. And um, they were molested. In some cases, their parents knew that they were being molested and said, well, okay, that's God's way. I mean, they really thought this guy, Victor Bernard, was Christ personified. Um, no one had listened to these girls. Um, cops listened to them, but the prosecutors didn't do anything with the case. They totally fell down on the job, almost criminally so. Uh, and um, I found out about their story. And I said, you know what? I think I can make a difference. Cops always believed these women were credible. Uh, everyone's believe these women were credible and were telling a true story and it's been corroborated now by several people but I turned their story into a 10 minute investigation and it's led to a national manhunt for this guy Victor Bernard who had left and was in Seattle last known whereabouts were in Seattle with many of his followers he still has about 80 or so followers but you know that's that's a story that made a tangible difference not only to these two women in their lives I mean they're the heroes of the story they came forward but you know I was their mouthpiece and, you know, I like making noise. <laughs> that's kind of my job, making noise for people. So, They haven't found him yet? Mm-mm. That's, uh, that's unfortunate. Cult leaders are tricky. Cult leaders are tricky. Does that scare you at all? Does what scare me? Victor Bernard? Oh, no. Victor Bernard doesn't scare me. I mean, you know, I've never... People ask me... That's funny because people ask me that question a lot because I do a lot of stories on gangs and gang leaders and so forth. I think it's important to find out who's running the gang if you can. And I do stories on lots of people who probably are dangerous. Uh, I've never had any kind of concern for my personal safety. Knock on wood. Uh, it just... You just don't think about it or... I'm not dumb. Uh... You know, I probably take precautions that I wouldn't want to tell anyone about. But, uh, no, I'm not very fearful. 
which is probably good good quality for an investigator. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I think if you were, I think that would really change you. I mean, I know. Listen, that could change too. I mean, I know reporters. I've also been very lucky. I mean, I've worked with reporters at this station who have been assaulted, um, who have been beat up, and in some way, in some cases, critically. I worked with a reporter named Julia Sandich at this station. Uh, who had a brick knocked over her head during a riot in North Minneapolis. Uh, you know, her perspective on the business changed, as you would think it would. Um, you know, that was a devastating thing that happened to her. So, you know, never assume that, you know, life will stay the same or your perspective on it will stay the same. I mean, hers certainly changed. That's pretty awful. Oh, it was horrible. I don't know that thing. story. Yeah, it was, it, was many, it was actually before I got here. I got here in the aftermath, but it was, uh, I think it was 1992. Three? No, it was 1990. Maybe it might have been the summer of... Oh, it, might, it was 92 or 93. And it was right in North Minneapolis. Uh, the rumor was that a young boy had been shot. I don't think that turned out to be the case. KMOJ probably didn't play a great role in this. I think they kind of inflamed the situation maybe a bit at the time. And someone came along with a brick and knocked out Julia Sandich and also assaulted our photographer, Rod Wormager. It was caught on tape. Several of the stations caught it on tape. You know, she went on to, she recovered and did, you know, I think she was on Oprah even or something. But, you know, her perspective really did change in the business. It it changed her. I think it changed the newsroom a little bit, too. I mean, people were very concerned about covering stuff like that after that. Well, we walk into sticky situations all the time, but we don't, that doesn't happen that often. An attack on journalists, you know? No. I mean, we were, before the microphone, before the tape started rolling, we were talking about Chicago and the differences in covering crime, Chicago versus Minneapolis, and it's it's day and night. I mean, as I told you, I've never been at a crime scene in Minneapolis. I shouldn't say never. There have been very few where I felt like my safety was in jeopardy. Um, and the station would be fully supportive in saying, you know, no problem. Your safety should be in jeopardy. Pull out. And as I recall, there have been one or two live shots we had to kind of pull because it got a little too dicey at the scene. Um, but, you know, I think that's also a product that I live in Minneapolis and I kind of know the city pretty well, so I feel pretty comfortable in it. But, you know, that can be bad. You know, you can that can be an illusion, right? I think when I was living here, there was a situation where the state prisons were all put on lockdown mm-hmm. because of uh, the gangs were running the prison or something. I think you broke that story. Do you remember that? I do, uh, and it, wa- it wasn't. It was a gang that was just very active, and it was uh, the native uh, native mob. That's right. That's yeah. right. And I did break it that night. I actually didn't end up doing it. To be honest with you, thanks for bringing up something on my to do list. You know, the native mob is very interesting. That led to a, a major federal indictment, which all those people were uh, kind. Of, uh, a lot of those people were nailed. Yeah. That's an interesting gang because it operated so heavily on the reservations. Uh, especially uh, Red Lake, and then was kind of the dominant, and probably still is the dominant prison gang, and literally had you know their own prison economy, their own prison hierarchy, very, very, very advanced gang. And uh, the prisons, uh, Department of Corrections, has this intelligence unit that's very, very good, uh, and they worked a very long case on that prison gang. Uh, I did break the initial story, but I will tell you, I think there were lots of <laughs> lots of cards left on the table in that case and lots of really good, intriguing things. Um, I know that there's video surveillance that I don't think ever been seen. Um, you know, that's all locked away probably in some U.S. attorney's vault uh, and somewhere. I don't know where the record lies to do the correct FOIA or data practices request, but 
I got a feeling there are lots of goodies left there uh, about that gang uh, because they were very sophisticated. It's probably never quite gotten the attention or the publicity uh, reporting that it should. But a, yeah, no, it's, a, it's an interesting situation. But that's a that's a thing that for some reason I I still remember that was a Tom Lydon story breaking that the Good. whole prison system was on lockdown. <laughs> well, that was a late night story too, as I recall. Yeah, as I recall, that was kind of happening at that moment. We didn't quite know what was going on, but I knew enough of the background about what had been going on that I was sort of able to kind of connect the dots and the pieces on that really quickly. Um, you know, Scott's gone, so you can ask me anything you want <laughs> at this point. Well, the uh, there is one thing which uh, you know. So you're famous for your investigative reporting, right? And, uh, and, and, and you know, you're a tremendous reporter. Uh, Thanks. You had, that, you had a unique situation as a reporter, right? When you, I've had a couple of unique situations. but You've probably had a lot. <laughs> do you get tired of getting asked about the, the, tapes, the tape situation? I, do, I rarely get Is asked it, about it, to be okay. honest with you. So I'm happy to talk about it. You know, it's funny. It's a long time ago, right? Yeah. yeah I don't yeah. know. I can't even tell you how long. But it might be like 15 years, right? Something like that. Yeah. It's funny. You know, I talk a lot about growth, and God knows that's got to be part of the growth experience, right? Yeah, it's funny. What happened? Well, you know, what happened is it was a, a momentary bad decision. You know, in some ways it's kind of gotten misreported over the years and kind of misinterpreted. Um, I'll just go through a brief factual, you know, kind of, you know, I was doing a story about a boxer, Will Grigsby, who was under investigation for domestic assault, but also some horrific, violent um, dogfighting. And you know, part of the deal with dogfighting is training the dogs. You have to train them to be fighters and, and all that. And we were on Grigsby's property, um, and there was a tape cassette in the car. And uh, this is a place that the cops had already gone through, because I already had the search warrant. And there was a tape cassette in the car, and I, you know, uh, there were photographer there and I won't go into kind of the, the details of it but the long and the short was there was a broken cassette tape in the back of the car and I took it I ended up getting it repaired and I uh, remember pretty vividly telling my news director I said I have some good news and bad news the good news is I have a tape showing this dog fighting involving this uh, lightweight boxing champ and uh, the videotape is horrific it shows some horrible dogfighting that could really, you know, bring the public's attention to some pretty horrific acts that go on. Here's the bad news. The bad news is how I got it. And the bad news is, you know, this is someone's property. I was on their property. Uh, you know, they probably won't claim it because it's <laughs> it's evidence of a crime, so they're probably not going to be saying, hey, that's my dogfighting tape. Um, and, you know, I realized that it was wrong. I mean, I realized pretty quickly. Uh, I won't tell you what other people advise uh, or who advise, but I will say people said, oh, you know, uh, just send it to yourself in the mail. And that's, you know, we can say we just got it in the mail or something like that. <laughs> I'm like, well, no, that's that's lying. Right. I'm not going to do that. And and I told them. I said, because, you know, the authorities didn't know we had that. In fact, they wanted, they were very curious. I was like, what? where the hell did you get that? Because I don't think they had anything like that. I mean, quite frankly, the cops were a joke. They did a very poor search because that would have been pretty obvious, right? right. And the search warrant applied to the car. So 
I, I probably embarrassed them pretty good. But anyway, I said, hey, um, I, you know, they need this because it's really, while the story is important, it's also important to prosecute them. And I think the part of this story that always gets left out is I told the cops I got the tape. I told the cops how I got the tape. I said, hey, I've got something you want. And this is before we ever aired the story. I said, I got something that's important to you. And here it is. And this is how I got it. And the cops interviewed me because they need to know to use that tape what the chain of evidence would be. And I said, okay. It was in the back of an unlocked car in the, in the map section where you put maps. And I saw it and I got it out and I repaired the tape and da-da-da-da-da. And they really didn't want us at the time to run the story. I probably would not have been prosecuted if we did not run the story. They had the original tape. Of course, we made a copy. And I was like, no, we're going to do the story. We got it. Uh, and we did the story, and they ended up charging me. I think they charged me with auto tampering and theft. I think I pled to auto tampering, guilty. And you know the part that, and I did an apology on the air, and it was a front page story. It made got national attention, all that. It was yeah. a big deal, and it should have been a big deal. I get that. Although I think in Minneapolis, given the nature of this market, you know, I I was talking to colleagues in other markets, and they Miami and other places, and they were like, "Oh my God, you must be a big deal. That must be awesome, right? People must love you." I'm like, mm, "Not so much. I mean, you know, half the people did. Half the people, you know, I was fighting for dogs and cats, and you know, the animal lovers and different people thought I was fighting for truth, justice in the American way, and you know, the other people probably wanted to hang me with howls of execration." You know, so it was pretty mixed. But what I think gets lost in, in the, the retelling of that story very often is that I was sort of, you know, I made one mistake. I made one very stupid initial mistake. And everything I did afterwards was trying to make it right. And including telling the cops that we ate what we had. We didn't have to do that. We did it. I did it. And I was the one pushing to do that because I thought it was the right thing. Um, and we have, I paid a price for it, as I should have, which is fine, too. So I'm sort of philosophical about the whole thing. I will tell you, you know, removed from it, 16, 18 years, I think the lesson that comes out of it and the reason it probably hasn't, you know, done irreparable harm to me, you know, it's, it's like I think what people remember is, God, Leiden will go to the end of the earth probably to get a story and do what he has to do. Uh, and also, I think it probably humanized me to some extent. Uh, you know, it's not very often that someone has to eat humble pie and do an apology on the air, and I was willing to do that. Um, I think other people may have shrunk, left the market, gone elsewhere. I stuck it out. I stayed here. I redeemed myself. You know, I am certainly not defined by one story. I would hope that nobody is defined by one event in their life. And, you know, I've gone on to have a pretty good track record after that. I think that helps, too. Sure. So I think the lingering memory that's left is of, wow, that guy will kind of do almost anything, right? And, but hopefully a wiser, uh, a wiser, a more a well-adjusted reporter who kind of knows where the lines are. So, so yeah. Was that um, – and did that change you in any way? Oh, God. Yeah, of course. I saw my career and my life flash before my eyes. Well, I will say I saw my career flash before my eyes. <laughs> Not your life. Not my life because – and I will tell you, other people may have seen their life. But I had a great – I have a great husband. And I have a great family. And uh, they made it very clear. Uh, my career may have been flashing before my eyes, maybe. But my life certainly was not. And they got me through it. They made me realize very early on that we'll get through this. This is going to be very difficult. When you have reporters from other TV stations showing up at your front porch, you know, recording it. Uh, recording it? Yeah, I did. And by the way, that is something that I have done countless times. And all of a sudden, it was being done to me. 
Um, that makes you wiser, I think, and certainly more empathetic to what people are going through when they are at the eye of the storm. Because for a few weeks, I was at the eye of the storm. You know, it was a couple of front page articles and so forth and national coverage and so forth. So it has made me very empathetic to people who all of a sudden find themselves plopped in the middle of a firestorm. Um, and I think it's always also made me appreciate that there's more to them than that one moment. I don't know. It, I got to be honest. It's made me a better reporter. Countless times I... I have thought back on that experience, you know, vis-a-vis someone else's predicament. Um, you know, I think about that with Michael Broadcorp. He is the uh, Senate staffer, uh, chief of staff for the House Senate who had the affair with Amy Koch. Um, you know, Michael's a good guy. Michael's a smart guy. Michael's in what was a dirty business at times of, you know, of politics. I mean, you know, he was a combatant, and he would probably say that. Um, but it gave me an appreciation for the two of them and what all of a sudden they found themselves in. You know, I think they would probably both say, you know, they did something unwise, you know, in having a personal relationship like that. But, you know, they're good human beings. They're not, at their core, I don't think either of them are bad people. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, you know, and they're, they're very interesting. They're complicated people. Are we're we all, all? We're all complicated. <laughs> yes, that's what I was going to say. We're all complicated. Right. So, but, it, but that kind of, I mean, I remember in doing that reporting, it made me, you know, I thought back on my own experience. And it just gave me an appreciation that their story was probably a lot more nuanced than we probably thought. So you've got all these years in the news business now, right? Uh, probably like 25 or something? On the news business, going back probably 27, kind of going back to being a reporter, you know, for the Daily Star Progress and all that. Probably. What's next for you? Um, you know, I, one of the great I said one of the great things about here is kind of a growth curve and a development curve. We did a pilot show called The Reporters, which was sort of me talking to other reporters who are in the news biz and who are breaking good and interesting stories. I mean, I love reporters. I mean, you men- mentioned you were out at having drinks with a bunch of other reporters. I love doing it. I don't get to do stuff like that as nearly as often as I like, but I love talking to other reporters and kind of crawling into their minds a little bit about, you know, just where they're coming from, what their approach is. I've, I think reporters are sort of fascinating. The good, the bad, <laughs> the in-between. <laughs> you know, I really do. I think, you know, our motives are really interesting and different and people's approaches are different. I mean, obviously, that's why you do this podcast. Uh, so I did a show called The Reporters where we sort of kind of took a different slant on uh, not only the News of the Week but also kind of interviewing other reporters. I anchored that. I really... I. I did kind of the whole show. I mean, I, I just put everything together. So it was really a sort of uh, my, you know, one of the great things is you, you go through life at a station, and if you're lucky enough to be at a place for 20 years, and you say, God, if I ran this place, I would do this. Or if I if this was my show, I would do this, I would do this. And basically, Carol Ruppel, our general manager, and Marion Davey, my news director, said, okay, go ahead, do it. <laughs> and how often does someone give you the keys to the car? I mean, they did not the station, but but my show a Sunday morning. It was a Sunday morning show, uh, and it was awesome. It was a lot of work. I got a little burned out. It was a very busy summer for me. I'm taking a couple of vacations. I just got back from a week vacation, taking another week, uh, so I'm a little burned out. But it was an awesome experience. The shows are great. I'll provide you some links, and um, it was really rewarding. I learned a lot. The show is kind of in a hiatus. We're kind of trying to decide what to do with it from here what it becomes, what the workflow would be like, whether it's the best use of my time. But that has been great. So that was a new experience. Um, if there's kind of more something like that that's a little bit broader than doing that, that's, you know, 
That's great. I've been doing some anchoring. That's a totally different animal for me, which is really interesting, um, doing the anchoring. And um, I love the investigative work. I mean, it's all people wonder if I get burned out. But, you know, there's always a new great story. There's always a new onion to peel back. And I love doing that. I don't know. I, I go, here's the biggest lesson I've learned. Biggest lesson I've learned in, in terms of kind of a career. And that is you have peaks and valleys. And one of the things about your experience is your valleys are not as low as they used to be. Uh, and your peaks hopefully may be a little bit higher. But, you know, you learn how not to make too big a deal over the peaks and not to get too depressed over the valleys. You know, I will go through a trough where I'm like, God, I haven't broken a big story in a while. I haven't done a big investigative piece. Oh, my God, I'm totally worthless. I haven't done an interesting story. And then all of a sudden, boom, you know, you're breaking some big story. And then you're on you're on a tear. There are like five more stories after that. And then you're back. I've gone through a lot of valleys and a lot of peaks. And I just know now that, okay, this is a valley. It's okay. I'll get through this. This will last a few weeks. And then we'll be back, you know, grinding out some good stories. So, you know, you just have to kind of make your way through the valleys. And that's been a big relief. I, that's just uh, recognizing that we kind of go through these little ebbs and flows is huge. And, you know, I, I get, again, I don't get too low in the troughs and don't get too high in the peaks. I, you know, did well at the Emmy Awards. We just had those and got three Emmy Awards. And I got to tell you, those were great. It's really an honor. And this makes me a little sad, I will tell you, but it probably doesn't mean what it would have meant to me 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Sure. You know, after that, I probably would have been walking on, <laughs> it might have been impossible to deal with in the newsroom, <laughs> but I probably would have been sky high for a couple months. And you know what? It lasted a weekend. And, you know, I wasn't, didn't get to go. I was at my mother-in-law's 84th birthday, which, quite frankly, was more important to me right. than going to the Emmys. And so, yeah, so that doesn't, you know, it's a little sad. It's a little poignant because, you know, once upon a time, I lived for that stuff. Right. I thought that was really important to win big awards and all that. And my younger self probably wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't dream of that. So, you know, it's nice, but, you know. I think that's good. I think that's called maturing that you recognize that those things don't quite mean what they... I think that birthday is more important than those Emmys. Oh, so do I. Yeah. Uh, There's no question about it. Right. But congratulations. If people want to follow you, what's the best way to do it? Uh, Follow me. I'm on Twitter. I'm Leiden TV at Twitter. I'm on Facebook, but I don't really do much on Facebook. Facebook's just a platform for my Twitter. And I go through uh, episodes where I'm very hot on Twitter, and then I go on hiatus a little bit if I'm working on something. Um, and I also don't, you know, I try to tweet about things that are sort of interest to me, of, of the news that's going on. It's not just what I'm doing. Because, you know, uh, I don't, I'm still trying to figure out what social, what people want from different social media. You know, I, I thought that people wanted to hear all my stories in social media, but I am not sure that that's what they want on Twitter as well. So I'm trying to figure out stuff like that. But, you know, I have a Twitter account. I have a YouTube channel. Uh, and certainly, you know, my stories are pretty prominent here at Fox 9, so on so, our website. But usually I try to retweet stories that I think are of note. So my Twitter account's a pretty good place to go. Well, I appreciate you taking some time to talk with me. Oh, my God. I really, really enjoyed that. God, put a microphone in front of me for an hour <laughs> and ask me to talk about myself. Who would not like that opportunity? I should thank you.
Well, uh, <laughs> you are welcome. Okay, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.